Well, now we're going to continue this series, Engage and Encounter. Uh, gospel Narratives, as Nate has already introduced to us, I feel like I've got uh, a pretty easy task. And you know, we're talking about what does it mean to encounter Jesus through Scripture. Uh, we are literally talking about Jesus' stories this morning. So I feel like I've got an easy task. But nevertheless, there's still some really important stuff to understand and learn as we seek to engage with the person of Jesus uh, through Matthew, Mark, Luke and John and the stories that they tell us. So to start with, I want to actually take you to the movies. I want to talk a little bit about a movie called The Croods from a few years ago. Now, um, if you've been around me long enough, you know that I tend to use this example a lot. So apologies if you've sat through one of my uh, seminars or teaching somewhere else where you might have seen this. But this is one of my favourite animated movies from a number of years ago now. If you haven't seen it, uh, it's a movie set around this family called the Croods. They're living in prehistoric times, so they live in a cave. Uh, the patriarch of the family is Grug. He's in the middle there, voiced by Nicolas Cage. Uh, and he takes it on himself to keep his family safe. That's what he wants to do. His one job in life is to keep his family safe in what he perceives to be a very dangerous world around them. So the mantra of the family is really simple. Never don't be afraid. Never don't be afraid. And so in order to kind of keep them in that kind of world, when they're tucked away in their cave safe at night, each night he tells them a story. And it's a particular kind of story. Anything that's new or different or exciting, anyone takes any kind of risk at all and it's just... Bang, it's like sudden death. That's the way the story goes every single night. And so you can imagine for the family, their whole imagination of who they are and the world around them is shaped by that story. And they get that same story every single night. Now, I want to cut to a scene a little bit later in the film. Uh, the daughter of the family, she's been a bit rebellious. She left the cave when she shouldn't, and the family's had to leave without, with her as well. And so they are now out in this kind of wide world, a dangerous world, and they're trying to make sense of it. Along the way, they have met a young man named Guy. And Guy has lived a little bit more of the world. And, and he is trying to convince them that there's more to life than fear. There's more to life than just being in the cave all the time. So this scene I want to show you cuts to a, a point in the film where the family is kind of settling down for the night and the family wants to hear a story from Dad. They want to hear Grug's story again and it gives us a beautiful picture of what story does for us. Let's play the clip. Grug, how about a story? Oh, oh that's, a, that's a good idea. How about a story, huh? Yeah, a story. Tell us a story. Once upon a time, there was a little tiger who lived in a cave with her family. There were a lot of rules, but the big simple one was to never leave the cave at night. And the door was so heavy, you'd think it would be easy to remember. So easy to remember. I know. <sighs> but while everyone was asleep, she went out anyway. No! Yes, and no sooner than she did, their cave was destroyed and everyone had to go on this long, sucky walk with some weirdo they met and die. <laughs> the end. Whoa! I did not see that common twist ending. My stories never end like that. Yes, two <laughs> stories in one night! <laughs> Okay, um, but it won't be as good as Grug's. 
Once upon a time, there was a beautiful tiger. She lived in a cave with the rest of her family. Her father and mother told her, you may go anywhere you want, but never go near the cliff, for you could fall and die. Good story. But when no one was looking, she'd go near the cliff. For the closer she came to the edge, the more she could hear, the more she could see, the more she could feel. Finally, she stood at the very edge. She saw a light. She leaned out to touch it. And she slipped. <gasps> and she fell. And she flew. Where did she fly? Tomorrow. Tomorrow? A place with more suns in the sky than you can count. It would be so bright. A place not like today or yesterday. A place where things are better. Tomorrow isn't a place. It's, it's, it, you can't see it. Oh, yes. Yes, it is. I've seen it. That's where I'm going. All right, we might leave it there. I could keep watching that. Um, no matter how many times I've seen that particular scene, I love it every time. Uh, there is something about it that here is a family that's been told the same story over and over and over again, and that is the story that shaped their imagination. And here they are being invited into a different kind of story. And you can just see as they approach that point in the story where they have the kind of expected uh, ending that someone's going to die, they're ready to get up and leave. But the story continues. And it's just that sense in which their eyes widen and their jaws drop as their imagination is shaped around a different story. And I love that, that scene. I've always loved it for that very fact that it actually speaks to the power of story to powerfully shape our imagination. And as we come to look at gospel stories this morning, that's exactly what they are supposed to do for us as well. Gospel stories are not just cute biographical stories. They are designed to shape our imagination around the very identity of Jesus and the nature of his kingdom. Tom Wright, in his book, Simply Jesus, reflects on the fact that many people outside of the church actually reduce often Jesus to just being a good moral teacher. But his warning for us in the church is that we can be equally as reductionistic in the way that we think about Jesus. He says this, that Jesus, the Jesus we might discover if we really looked, is larger, more disturbing, more urgent than we, than the church had ever imagined. It's we, the church, who have been the real reductionists. We've reduced the kingdom of God to private piety, the victory of the cross to comfort for the conscience, and Easter itself to a happy escapist ending after a sad, dark tale. Piety, conscience, and ultimate happiness are important, but not nearly as important as Jesus himself. I love that idea that Jesus is larger, more disturbing, more urgent than we ever imagined. And I think what he's saying is that often we've just reduced Jesus to simply kind of our ticket to heaven. That someone who forgives our sins so we can escape out of this world someday. But if we really look, what we find in the stories of the Gospels is a Jesus who is a saviour king, 
who comes announcing and enacting and inviting us into a radical coming kingdom. So we want to engage with these stories, not just this morning, but as we go through the week. And as we do so, there's a few things I want to say about gospel narratives. And the first kind of lot of these things uh, are kind of the background information. What do we need to know as we look at some of these stories? What's going to help us understand some of these stories better? And so just a few things uh, to start with. The first one is this, that they present Jesus as the fulfilment of the Old Testament. Whatever we do, as we come to the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, we're not looking through the lens of we're starting a brand new story. These stories are deeply connected with the Old Testament, deeply connected with the promises and the longings and the prophecy that we find right through the Old Testament. Jesus is the fulfilment of those stories rather than being a brand new story. They point to the identity of Jesus as the Messiah, as the Son of God. Gospel stories are designed to challenge us to respond to the person of Jesus. As we read these stories, as we engage with them, we're supposed to ask ourselves the question, who is this Jesus? And if Jesus is who he says he is, how should I then respond? The third thing to understand, the bigger picture thing to understand as we look at these stories is that they present the death and resurrection of Jesus as the ultimate climax of the biblical story. And we pick that up from reading these stories as well. Anytime you look in Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, what you'll find is that there's a certain kind of momentum that's taking us towards the cross and resurrection of Jesus. Just in the pure time that they give uh, to the last week of Jesus' life shows that this is the climax of the story. All of the little stories of the Gospels kind of head towards the big story of Jesus, his death and his resurrection. And finally, a little hint as we're looking at some of these stories as well, is that each of the Gospels are different. But each of the Gospel writers, like great movie directors, will kind of put their stories together in such a way as to give us a different picture of who Jesus is and the nature of his kingdom. And we're going to have a little look at that this morning as we look a little bit closer at the book of Luke. But each of the gospel writers might be writing to a different audience with a slightly different intention, but each in their own way are designed to elicit a response from us that we might follow Jesus and that we might find life in him. So let's have a look at one story, just one story in particular this morning And we want to have a think about how we might read and understand that and give us some clues as to what we do during the rest of the week as well. So we're going to have a look at Luke chapter 7 this morning. It's going to come up on the screen, but the app, it's in the app as well. And it's in your Bible, funnily enough, as well, if you've got one of them here as well. So Luke chapter 7, I'm going to start at verse 36. And it's the story of Jesus at Simon the Pharisee's house. So Luke chapter 7, verses 36 to 50. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them and poured perfume on them. 
When the Pharisee who invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she's a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You've judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I've come into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. And then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Tim Mackey from The Bible Project, the guys that do all those wonderful online videos about the Bible, he says that instead of simply telling us how to respond to Jesus, putting out dot points for us if you like, what the gospel authors do is that they often use people's diverse reactions to Jesus as a way of showing us how to or how not to respond to Jesus. Does that make sense? They tell stories. They give us examples about how we should or maybe how we shouldn't respond to Jesus. And this story in Luke is a classic example of that. It's worth just slowing down for a second to see how different the responses are from Simon the Pharisee and the sinful woman who isn't even named in this story. How differently they respond to Jesus, how different their motivations are. There's such a stark and unexpected contrast in this story. While the more religious Simon has invited Jesus around for a meal, he seems to keep Jesus at a safe distance. And his scepticism shows through, doesn't it, when he says, well, if this man were truly a prophet, wouldn't he know who this is? Meanwhile, this sinful woman, who's not welcome, nor is she invited to the party, is so overcome with Jesus that she wets his feet with her tears and pours perfume on his feet. The response from this sinful woman is wholehearted and it's ostentatious, it's over the top. It's a display of her desperation to be close to Jesus. And so what we find in this story, it's that it's a sinful woman and not a religious rule keeper that show us how we ought to respond to Jesus. Now we can easily gloss over that because maybe we've heard this story before, but just think about how radical that is in a first century context. A sinful woman is the one that shows us how to respond to Jesus, not the religious rule keeper. Maybe that's just as radical in our 21st century context as well. But the gospel stories don't just stop there. They invite us to ask ourselves, do we see our own responses to Jesus mirrored in these characters? 
That is, as we read these stories, we need to ask ourselves, who do we relate to? Are we more like Simon? Probably really good at looking the part. Really good at sounding religious and following the rules, but kind of just keeping Jesus at an arm's length. Or are we like the woman? Do we acknowledge our need for forgiveness and the life that Jesus offers and come with a desperation to do anything to be close to him? Who do we relate to? I know as I read that story again during the week, I probably related much closer to Simon than the woman, acknowledging that I need to be much more like that woman in the way that I approach Jesus. Who do we relate to? These kinds of stories are challenging because they demand a response from us. Uh, in his book, Read the Bible for a Change, Ray Lubick, I think I've got the quote up here, um, talks about the fact, I won't go through the whole thing, but the, the last line, he says, a key difference from separating these gospel stories from a mere biography is that they demand a response from the reader. We don't just read these gospel stories as cute biographical stories, but as stories that challenge us to think about how we might respond to Jesus. So as we engage with these stories during the week, keep asking ourselves that question. What does it mean for me? How am I supposed to respond? But they don't just ask us to examine ourselves. They also challenge us to ask what is the author trying to tell me or what's the author trying to kind of teach me about Jesus through this story? And if we go back to Jesus at Simon's house, it seems awfully strange, I know, in our context. But often in the first century, these kinds of meals between like a Pharisee and a religious leader like Jesus at the time would attract a crowd. People would come out of their own homes uh, to kind of go to someone else's house and look from the outside to see what was going on. It attracted a crowd. But nevertheless, people were supposed to stay out in the public area and not come inside the house. And yet this woman comes in unwelcomed and uninvited. But Jesus doesn't keep her at a distance and he certainly doesn't turn her away. Instead, he speaks to her and treats her with incredible intimacy. Jesus allows her to draw close. And the, the response from Jesus is quite remarkable. Not only does he forgive her sins, but he turns to her and he says, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And the Hebrew community knew all about this word peace. It's the word shalom, one of the most important words and concepts in the whole of Scripture. Shalom is wholeness, completeness, completeness, fullness, flourishing life. To live in shalom is to live in harmony with God and with humanity and with all of creation. So when Jesus tells this sinful woman to go in peace, he's not just saying, thanks for coming, having a, have a nice day. It's not just a greeting like that. He's saying something incredibly profound. He's talking to her in such a way so that she knows, so that Simon knows, so that everyone sitting around the table knows, so that everyone that's eavesdropping outside knows that she has been embraced by God. And because God has embraced her, her community who knows her reputation, they must also embrace her and forgive her 
and love her. Jesus brings life and restoration to this woman and sends her on her way to live the life that God intended for her to live. So we ask ourselves, what does the author want me to know about Jesus? Well, not only is he divine, because who else can forgive sins, right? Not only is he divine, but he's loving and empathetic and compassionate and humble and kind. Not only is he God, but he's prepared to get close to those who are desperate and broken and hurting. Not only does he promise life after death, but restores people for life and community now. Every time we engage one of these gospel stories, we ask ourselves, what do we learn about Jesus? And if I could just give one more hint this morning, it would be this. That just like every other biblical genre, context is super important. And we've probably said this every week. Context is important. Because not only do the gospel authors want to challenge us to ask who Jesus is and challenge us as to how we should respond to him, but they arrange their stories in such a way as to give us a glimpse of what God's kingdom is like and who's invited to the party. This story that we find in Luke chapter 7 at Simon's house is surrounded by other stories that also paint a very specific picture of what God's kingdom is like. Just before this story, earlier in Luke chapter 7, we find the story of a grieving widow whose son is raised to life. This grieving widow, a widow who has lost her husband and now has lost her son, a woman in first century Jewish culture that would have had no voice, no community, no place. Jesus raises her son to life, gives her son back to her and gives her back essentially her life and place in community. In the very next chapter, in Luke chapter 8, we read a story about a woman who has been bleeding for 12 years and again ostracised from her community. There's a story of miraculous healing when in utter desperation she reaches out to touch the corner of Jesus' cloak as he walks past. And she encounters healing and wholeness and restoration to community. And you start putting these stories together and what they become are like little snapshots, little glimpses of God's kingdom that are breaking out into the world. People are healed. Outsiders are welcomed in. Women are given dignity and value. Those with no voice are restored to their place in community. The poor and the vulnerable are invited into the fullness of life that Jesus offers. Like great movie directors, the gospel writers put these stories together to give us, to shape our imagination around what is God's kingdom like and who is it for? Luke's gospel is sometimes referred to as the great reversal. He deliberately arranges these stories to communicate that those without power and privilege and wealth those who are at the bottom or on the margins of human society will now take pride of place in the kingdom of God. It's one of the intentions of Luke as a gospel writer. But not just here, and it's not just in Luke, across the four gospels with all of these stories where Jesus restores the blind and the deaf and the lame, 
when he casts out demons, when he raises the dead, when he stills the storm. These are not just supernatural magic shows to draw a crowd or to create a controversy. What's Jesus doing? He's putting things right. He's making things right, giving us a vision of the way that life is supposed to be in all its fullness. And put together, all of these stories are designed to shape our imagination of God's kingdom so that we might have eyes to see it breaking out in our world and so that we might be inspired to participate in it. During the week, I just happened to, I was doing a little Google search uh, about God's kingdom breaking out into the world. And I stumbled across a little article um, from a, a guy called Rich Stearns. Um, I read a book of his uh, a number of years ago called Unfinished. He was the president of World Vision uh, in the US. And this little article was about a recent trip that he had done, so a pre-COVID trip that he'd done to Honduras uh, in his role with World Vision. Uh, And he spoke about a guy that he met over there named Francisco. Francisco was invited to speak with Rich and some others about some farming techniques and and a vegetable business that he had managed to get up and going there in Honduras. And what Francisco shared was something quite remarkable. He shared that his agricultural training that he'd received through the local church had literally transformed his life. He not only, uh, well, he no longer had to travel for work and what that meant was that he could farm his own land and he could spend more time with his family and provide for their education. But not only that, through the training that he received at the church, he encountered Jesus for the first time. And this once drunk and abusive husband and father could now mentor other husbands and fathers in the community. His personal and individual transformation was quite remarkable. But Rich went on to talk about uh, what else they discovered in the community. I'll just read out what he went on to write. He said, The transformation we saw in Francisco had spread throughout the community. It was a glimpse of the kingdom in all its fullness. Once poor, despairing and without hope, the community now bustles with life and optimism. Crop yields and incomes are increasing. Women meet in groups to weigh their babies, assess family nutrition and help new mothers learn to raise healthy children. Financial groups are providing loans which help families to boost their incomes and assets. Children as well as adults are learning to lead change in their communities. Local churches are equipped to serve and God's love has infiltrated this community. When Jesus told his followers to preach the gospel of the kingdom to the ends of the earth, he asked us to show the world a different way to live. He asked us to reach out to people who have been broken, exploited, forgotten and ignored. When we demonstrate his great love to restore, redeem and renew the brokenness in our world, it's the most powerful invitation to the fullness of life God offers to all. That's what it looks like when God's kingdom breaks out into our world. And we love hearing stories like that, don't we? Hearing stories from Honduras or when I travel to Cambodia, seeing it firsthand, God's kingdom breaking through darkness, breaking through brokenness. We love hearing stories like that because just like 
the stories that we read about in the Gospels, they are snapshots of God's kingdom, signs of new creation life breaking through the brokenness and ache of a world that is still groaning for restoration. And part of our challenge as we engage with these gospel narratives, the stories of Jesus, is to ask ourselves, where do we see that happening around us now? In our time and place, in 21st century Australia, where do we see it? In our families, in our schools, in our workplaces, in our communities. Because God's kingdom is here. It's not yet here in all its fullness. And so we are inevitably going to see the pain and brokenness and darkness in our world. But where are the green shoots? Where are the signs of new creation life all around us that are breaking through the brokenness and the ache? And the challenge is how might we participate with Jesus in establishing his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven? How might we, following in the footsteps of Jesus, bring a voice to the marginalised? How might we treat people with dignity and value? How might we create community? How might we be generous, practice kindness and compassion, seek peace and bring life? Remember, if you take nothing away, remember this, that these gospel stories are not just biographies. They demand a response. Jesus is larger more disturbing, more urgent than we'd ever imagined. What's our response going to be? And that's our challenge. How do we respond to Jesus this morning? As we read the passages that are going to be given to us throughout the week, how are we going to respond to Jesus this week? Let me pray. God, we thank you so much that we can be together as community this morning. We thank you for the challenge that uh, we've already been given about what it means to live as one of your disciples. How do we allow your stories to shape us? How do we practice healthy rhythms and, and practices that, that enable us to abide with you, to build relationship with you, to follow in your footsteps? We thank you that you have given us Stories in the Gospels that allow us to get a little glimpse as to who you are, what your kingdom is like, and what we're invited into. And we just pray, Father, that you might, through your Spirit, enable us to be Jesus for the communities that we find ourselves in, this week in our families and in our workplaces, where we go to study in our footy clubs and netball clubs, the things that we do in our spare time may you enable us to live like Jesus so that we can give the world around us a little glimpse in our present world of what your kingdom is like. We thank you that it is through your grace that you invite us into that. And we pray that we might not just be able to do that as individuals, but you might draw us together as a community to be that together. So we just thank you for all these things and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.